Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, my name is Ron, and I'm the host of the New Books in Education, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Ethan Riss in his new book, Other People's Colleges, The Origins of American Higher Education Reform, published by the University of Chicago Press. Ethan is an assistant professor of higher education leadership at the University of Nevada, Reno, and his book focuses on the effects of activist philanthropy on American undergraduate education in the first half of the 20th century. Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I wonder if you'd begin this interview by saying a few words about yourself, your academic background, and your academic interests. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, so I am, as you said, a, a assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. Um, I've been here for uh, just uh, going into my sixth year. Um, and I do a couple of things. I, I run our higher education administration program, um, but I'm also sort of the, um, the in-house historian for the College of Education um, at the University of Nevada. So, um, and that speaks to sort of my scholarly interests as well. Um, I'm, I'm certainly uh, dual trained, I would say, as both a historian and as a scholar of education broadly. Um, and, um, and I attend you know, both history conferences and higher ed conferences and, and try to keep one foot in each field. Um, so as you might guess, that means I'm a historian of higher education specifically. Um, we're, we're a small sort of academic tribe, but we, uh, we all get along and, and stick together. So, so that's sort of my training and my focus. And, and as we'll certainly discuss today, my main academic interests are higher education policy and reform, and especially um, how external actors influence policy and reform. And so when I say external, I mean external to either an individual campus. So what perhaps, you know, a leader at one university thinks that other institutions um, should be doing or external entirely to higher education itself. So big philanthropic foundations, um, folks in government, including people in elected office, um, the business community, how, how all of those interests uh, sort of bring their ideas and their their money and their politics into American colleges and universities. Yeah, wonderful. And can you tell us also a little bit about the idea for writing this particular book and where that came from? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I was I got my PhD at Stanford, where I was very lucky to study at the knee of some great historians of education like uh, Larry Cuban, um, David Tyak, David Labory, and they're, they're folks who have carved out 
um, a field along with with other scholars like Michael Katz and James Anderson um, on a study of school reform, of looking at how um, generally powerful people have attempted to reshape the form and function of American K through 12 schools. Um, and as I steep myself in that literature um, as a graduate student, I found that there was somewhat of a gap, uh, specifically that a lot of the leaders of the school reform movement focused on K-12 schools were, were affiliated with research universities. And I started poking around in the archives and looking beyond the excellent work that had already been written and realizing that in fact, K-12 reform was, was just kind of a side project for a lot of these folks and that they spent an enormous amount of time thinking about how American higher education could be reformed. And then it turned out that, um, that a lot of them were sort of circling around two newly estate, I'm talking about the, the first couple decades of the 20th century, um, they were circling around two newly established philanthropic foundations, one established by Andrew Carnegie, one established by John D. Rockefeller Sr., um, who, of course, at the time were, were the two wealthiest private citizens in the world. Um, and they each started a foundation with the express purpose of higher education reform, um, even before they started their general purpose foundations like the Carnegie Corporation and the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, they were starting these things with permanent offices in New York, permanent endowments, permanent staff, all of that that we associate with the modern foundation, specifically devoted to this cause of getting American colleges and universities to shape up. So I knew something was up. There's something going on here. When really, really rich guys like that start putting money into a cause, we should probably pay attention. So that's sort of where the the idea originated. And I, I went into the project really with a lot of just sort of no, no hypothesis, just curiosity, just trying to figure out what what exactly was going on. And when I got deep into the archives, both at uh, the, you know, the records of those two foundations, um, the records of people like Carnegie and Rockefeller themselves, their personal papers, and then especially when I started visiting university and college archives all across the country, ended up going to about 20 of them, and seeing the work of these big foundations all over the place and seeing how, how really active they were and, and what a clear agenda they had, I sort of, I knew, okay, there's a book here. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. Uh, so let's maybe just take a, a step back for a second and provide our listeners with some context into the world of, of higher education reform. And I think you do a good job of motivating that in your book. You basically say that today, right, trying to relate that education reform in the early 20th century that you discuss to contemporary issues as well. Uh, you basically say that today, higher education policy has become the same as higher education reform. Um, and can you maybe speak a little bit about that so we can have some 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 context before diving into the book more deeply? Absolutely. Um, so when I say that, um, I'm, I'm really talking about um, a condition that is not uncommon in American history um, in, in the sense that when we talk about what what we should be doing at a policy level in terms of American colleges and universities, the first sentence following that is how do we reform them? How do we shape them? How do we make them change? Um, and, and there's really, I would argue, a consensus across 
uh, businesses, government officials, foundations, and and really, uh, you know, sort of political partisans from both the right and the left, that higher education in the U.S. must become more efficient, more accountable, and more useful both to students and to American society. Um, so I think that's that's an important context, and it has not always been the case. Um, certainly in the middle of the 20th century, there were several decades in which the focus of higher education policy was on expansion and growth and opening up access and building new colleges, starting new universities, uh, putting taxpayer dollars and, and philanthropic dollars into the sector so that it could grow and that it could keep doing what it was doing just on a larger scale. Um, but that is not how we think about higher education today, and it's definitely not how the policy uh, arena was was being played out a hundred years ago, which is the focus of the book. Yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, so let's dive a little bit into the book uh, just to advance a couple of things to our listeners. The book is major. Ma- it, has, it has mostly three parts, right? So one is in which you discuss a period uh, where ideas about higher education reform kind of emerged. And then a time in which foundations advanced those reforms and they were able to have important effects. And then finally, some some fight back and some resistance against those foundations and then the emergency of a different kind of consensus. And again, please, please correct me if I'm framing anything in the wrong way here. Um, so thinking with those major parts in mind, uh, let's let's focus on the first one. And there you identify that in the um, earlier 20th century, some business-oriented actors shared a sense of dissatisfaction with the state of higher education in America. Um, I wonder if you could speak about where this dissatisfaction came from and where the, the major concerns that they had. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, you, you sort of nailed the, the framework of the book. Um, and and you know, let's talk about that first section, which which I call um, the ethos of reform, sort of the the genesis and nature of these ideas um, that that the reformers had. So thinking about the progressive era in general, and that's that's really what I'm talking about the the periods in. Um, straddling the turn of the 20th century. Um, And I'm especially focused on the late progressive era, uh, sort of the 1910s, 1920s. Um, That's that's really the theme of the book. So um, uh, a great historian, Michael McGurr, wrote a book, um, I think it came out 20, 25 years ago, called A Fierce Discontent. Um, And that book really challenged a lot of what uh, scholars and students had assumed about the progressive era, um, that sort of uh, the old notion of progressivism was that it was sort of a virtuous movement to clean up government, to make the American society work better, um, to, you know, open up American society to the world and to free markets and um, to essentially just, you know, make things more modern, get us into the 20th century in, in an ethical way that would not, would not replicate the old, the bad old days of the 1800s when there was cronyism and, uh, you know, nepotism and, and, uh, bossism in politics, you know, sort of, uh, the Tammany Hall image we had. 
Um, so McGurr argues that, well, not really. And really what, the, what the, the progressive era was about was about middle and upper class people trying to impose their vision of order and modernity on a nation that was any, you know, anything but uh, unified. Um, you know, there was tremendous immigration. People were coming in from all over the world um, at the time. Um, there was tremendous flux in, in internal migration. People were moving to cities. The economy was industrializing. And, and it was kind of chaotic. Um, and the, the progressives, who, who my main characters um, certainly identified as progressives um, with, that, with the capital P, um, they were dismayed by all of this chaos. They wanted to impose rational order. They wanted to, to make things um, sort of, uh, I mean, efficiency. Efficient was their huge word. They kept saying that over and over again. It's not entirely clear that they were using it correctly, but they kept saying it nevertheless. And so, so that was the idea. And they, they worked on efficiency in all sorts of different a- areas. Um, but in one area, which which I think prior to uh, my book has not really been explored, was in, in higher education specifically. So they thought that much like the United States was too chaotic, was too full of people speaking different languages, practicing different religions, um, following different political systems, they thought the American higher education system was chaotic, was dominated by parochial interests, had way too much influence from um organized religion um, and was generally just not doing the work of social efficiency that they really believed it could. So, so that point is important. They, they believed in the power of higher education. They believed it was really an important, uh, potentially important part of the United States's you know, political economy, but, but they thought lots needed to change before we got to that point. So I call those folks um, the academic engineers. Um, and they were they were the the people who were sort of revolving around these big foundations and doing a lot of the work of reform. Yeah, so I, I wonder. Um, so one one of the things that I thought it was interesting in your description was the framing of those folks as engineers, right? So that has to do from from my understanding, from my reading of the book, it has to do with some of the ideas that shaped your perspective. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that as well. Absolutely. Um, so, so these folks were, were definitely not actual engineers, to be clear. Um, however, they're in, meaning they weren't trained in engineering. However, they revered engineering as a discipline um, and as a practice. It was just sort of becoming an academic discipline in the late uh, 1800s to begin with. And certainly the funders, people like Carnegie and Rockefeller, had gotten rich off of the work of, or the ideas, certainly, of engineers. And then, of course, the the hard and poorly compensated labor of, of lots and lots of uh, working class people. But they, they saw engineering as this sort of pathway to uh, modernity, and, and they saw it as a real science. Um, but the trouble came, and, and they weren't wrong. Um, the, the trouble came was when they started borrowing ideas from engineering and applying them to humanity. Um, so we see, you know, I mentioned that word efficiency, um, which is a word that comes directly from engineering. You know, if you ask an engineer, what's an efficiency? Well, you know, it's a ratio of, of inputs to outputs, essentially. How, how efficient is the machine or, or um, you know, whatever apparatus you're working with at uh, 
you know, preserving energy, essentially. Um, however, um, they use that word in, in a really wide variety of ways. In, in one sense, yes, it was about inputs and outputs. They, they saw tremendous sort of power and money going into American higher education. And they thought that what came out on the other end in terms of the students they produced, in terms of the credentials they produced, et cetera, et cetera, were were not worth the cost. So that's one sense. But they also just used efficiency sort of willy-nilly as meaning their vision of what should be right. So they would just label entire universities. This is an efficient university or this is an inefficient university. And it basically meant this is one that we like and this is one we don't like. Um, Another word that they borrowed uh, directly is is a word that we use so often today that we forget where it comes from. And that word is system. Um, so system is, is very much an engineering term um, describing, uh, well, I'm not an engineer, so, so I, I won't even attempt to give the engineer's definition of it. But, but when we think of um, American higher education, we always slap that word on, right? The American higher education system, um, which is sort of a misnomer. Um, unlike a lot of other nations in the world, almost all nations in the world, there is no national system of American higher education. Um, but that is that is not entirely uh, the, I mean, excuse me, let me free, rephrase that. That is partially due out of the failure of the academic engineers to get what they wanted done. They wanted a national system of higher education. They pointed to nations like Germany, which were developing national systems and said, we should emulate that. That's what we need. And um, they, the whole idea that we would have interconnections between universities, that there would be tiering and stratification, that there would be differentiation between colleges and universities, they came up with all those ideas and tried to put them into practice. They were totally dismayed at the concept that in the U.S. there were small colleges that were issuing PhDs. There were schools that called themselves universities, but were essentially glorified high schools um, that some states, they, they really found this one annoying, some states with taxpayer dollars were supporting multiple universities. They thought that was crazy. Um, one unifying thing was that they really believed there should only be one public university per state and that Basically, everything below that would feed into an apex university. A lot of them also thought that there should be one apex university for the entire United States that would crown the system, Um, a national university in Washington, D.C., that would get federal support and, and in theory, sort of all ideas would flow down from and talent would flow up to. So it would um, serve sort of the same function as the University of Berlin um, or the University of Paris. So so that was, you know, that was their vision. They didn't get what they wanted, of course. We don't have a national university. There's no national system. But that idea that we still talk about that there's a system, and of course, many states have systems. Um, I teach at the University of Nevada, Reno, which is the flagship of the Nevada system of higher education. And other states have have similar um, sort of statewide agencies that oversee all of their public institutions. That's not universal, but it's it's relatively common. So those types of ideas were ones that they were borrowing directly from the enge- from actual engineers and slapping on to, um, to educational institutions, which um, was sort of a problematic thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in the book, you talk about 
that one of the central things that made uh, that transformed these ideas into really a project for reform was the involvement of philanthropists, right? So Andrew Carnegie or John Rockefeller. Uh, and I wonder why do you think those ideas were so appealing to them or to folks like them? Absolutely. So, so it's important to distinguish when I talk about the academic engineers, I'm talking almost exclusively about folks who were involved with these two big foundations, the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, founded, of course, by Andrew Carnegie, and then the General Education Board, founded by John D. Rockefeller Sr. Um, And so those incredibly wealthy people wrote the checks that supported those foundations. I don't classify those two particular people as academic engineers themselves, mainly because sort of higher education reform was side project for them. They, you know, they wrote the checks, but they were writing lots and lots and lots of different checks. Um, Carnegie was pretty involved with his foundation and kept an interest in it and actually served on the board of Rockefeller's foundation. Um, Rockefeller himself sort of couldn't be bothered, but he appointed his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., um, to chair the board of the, the general education board. And, and he was the one who, who represented the family in the in the education reform sphere. So um, so all of that is to say that, that they were the guys writing the checks. But this this really got the attention um, of them, this, this sort of nascent movement. And then uh, early academic engineers got in the room with them and convinced them to write checks um, very effectively to, to bankroll the movement. Um, but it was a natural fit for them, which was kind of ironic because neither Rockefeller nor Carnegie had gone to college. Um, Carnegie was a sixth grade dropout. Um, uh, Rockefeller had taken sort of eight weeks of a, of a business program after he finished high school um, in, in a little, it called itself a business college, but it didn't offer degrees. Um, and so they, they really had no personal familiarity with with college education, certainly, but they had become convinced that colleges and universities were potential instruments towards making the United States modern. And they were very sympathetic to the academic engineers concept that what was needed in, in the sector was system, definitely connecting everything together, but also centralized control. That was a huge issue for them. So, thinking about their business ethos and their sort of economic ethos, um, we might sort of, you know, if we don't think too hard about it, we might assume that those early capitalists were kind of like today's uh, economic right wing, that they believed in the power of the free market above anything, that regulation was bad, um, that taxation was bad, and that 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 was their worldview. Not the case at all. In the Gilded Age, when these guys were getting so deliriously wealthy, um, people like Carnegie and Rockefeller were against the free market. They hated the free market. And everything they did to build their famous industrial trusts was anti-competitive. That's why in 1914, uh, the Congress passed the Sherman Antitrust Act to crack down on the industrial trust, to impose free, uh, the, uh, free market ideas on, on the business sector. So their, their whole scheme with the industrial trust was consolidation and then vertical integration. So, you know, when John D. Rockefeller, when we talk about him as, as the oil baron, the oil king, he was, his company, Standard Oil, owned every aspect 
of oil from literally from extracting it out of the ground to transporting it to refining it to uh, selling it. They also own the gas stations at every step. Then they own the railroads too. I mean, they 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 had every uh, aspect under one umbrella, and of course, they were able then to set their own prices and and drive up their profits tremendously. But they saw all of that as virtuous. Again, going back to that fierce discontent of elites in the progressive era, they didn't want the free market. They didn't want people competing. They saw that as as wasteful, as inefficient, inefficient as um, you know, duplication. They always talked about uh, duplication of effort. Um, they thought all of that was was really bad. So when folks came to them with these plans to say, "Well, hey, you did such a good job, you know, making the business sector efficient and systematized. Let's do that to colleges and universities, and those in turn will, you know, help the United States get into a better place um, and help us become a world power." They they bought what the academic engineers were selling, and they eventually ended up donating the the modern day equivalent of uh, billions and billions of dollars to these foundations. Yeah, so so far we have this picture of the academic engineers partnering with uh, philanthropists in order to advance this agenda of education reform, uh, and in the book you. One of the next steps that you go through, you basically describe uh, some of the obstacles in attaining this goal, some of the the enemies, quote unquote, that uh, probably would pose some resistance or that didn't uh, emphasize that picture that they had in mind. Uh, Could you also describe uh, some of that to our listeners as well? Absolutely. So, So when they looked at the higher education system, well... I shouldn't use that word yet because um, they, they thought it should be a system. They, the higher education landscape is a better term um, in, let's say, 1905 when, when both foundations got their, got their endowments. Um, they, they saw just a total mess, and especially they saw too many institutions. They simply thought there were too many institutions um, calling themselves colleges or universities, and specifically too many institutions offering the bachelor's degree. That was really the big sticking point. Was um, was the bachelor's degree? You know, at that time was was really a coveted thing. Students went to college seeking it, just like they did today. Um, but it was rare, and it conferred a lot of status. And these folks, these elites, thought that that status should be rationed. That there should be fewer institutions offering the bachelor's degree, and therefore fewer students earning it, um, because they thought the current system was sort of cheapening that credential. Um, and they had a, a few targets in mind when they they talked about, well, we have to reduce the numbers of colleges and universities in the country. Um, one of the one of the leaders, um, the leader of the GEB, which was Rockefeller's Foundation, went so far as to say, we there should only be a hundred degree granting institutions in the United States, down from about 500 or 600 at the time. Um, and so he wanted to reduce those numbers. And, and basically, everybody agreed that, that the numbers had to be reduced. Um, of a special interest in terms of reduction were small colleges, um, and especially colleges that were supported by religious denominations, um, meaning Christian, Protestant denominations, as well as Catholic institutions. Um, they saw these as incredibly inefficient, as anti-modern, as duplicating work. So they would look at especially states in the Midwest and say, well, look, you know, in Western Ohio, we have 
12 different colleges within, you know, a 90 mile area. And we've got, you know, the Presbyterians have their college and the Methodists have their college and the Baptists have their college. And all of this is horribly inefficient. Um, and none of those essentially should exist. We should be pouring um, the resources into a much smaller number of institutions, which will then create inefficient efficiencies, excuse me. Um, so they, they definitely wanted to do battle with those. Um, as a result of that sort of against the small college, against denominational colleges, they ended up um, attacking and, and calling for the closure of the vast majority of the United States' uh, what we now call historically black colleges, most of which were affiliated with, with Christian denominations, and most of the women's colleges as well, um, which they, which again, were often affiliated with Christian uh, churches, um, but in general, very small and, um, and not well endowed. So they thought that, that those institutions should die off or that perhaps they should merge with other ones um, or become a different kind of institution, which I can talk about in a bit. Um, but those, those were sort of the, the chief obstacles. And then I mentioned earlier when it came to public higher education, which at the time was still sort of a, a, a not that common thing. Most students until actually until the 1950s in the U.S. went to private institutions. But when they saw publicly supported um universities and colleges in states where where the state was supporting more than one, they thought that was incredibly inefficient. So they, I mentioned Ohio, they were also uh, very concerned about Ohio publicly because Ohio had three universities at the turn of the century that it was supporting with tax dollars on an equal basis. They had um, Ohio University, which was the oldest in the East, they had Miami University in the West, and then they had uh, Ohio State University, which was actually the, the newest of the three um, in the state's land-grant college. But that was in, in the middle of the state in Columbus, in the state capital. Um, and their belief was that Ohio, the Ohio legislature should cut off the two peripheral schools and focus all of their funding and support on Ohio State, and that that should be the one actual university in the state. Um, so they had ideas like that as well. So they saw all sorts of sort of duplication and waste and, and they wanted to crack down on that. So, so far we've been uh, talking at the abstract level about the ideas, about uh, where the, the project that those folks had in mind. Uh, so now maybe we can jump into uh, what actually happened, right? So what were they able to achieve? Were they able to advance this agenda of a higher education system? What are some of the successes they were able to have early on in the start of the 20th century? So yes, yes and no is, is my answer to your question about success. Because I do, at many points in the book, I talk about how these folks failed to achieve their their dreams. Um, but that's not to say that there weren't a lot of successes, as you, as you aptly point out. So, I mean, one, a lot of their successes were, um, well, they, they sort of came in two categories. There was an infrastructural type of success, and then there was an ideological type of success. So I'll talk about the structural one first. Um, so, you know, I mentioned that word, system and the idea that um, that there should be linkages between institutions. And to a large extent, they did succeed in, in sort of getting that idea out there, um, So, especially in the public sector. So while they didn't really get states to shut down um, 
publicly funded colleges and universities that, that were sort of, they thought should be second class, they were able to put in this idea that there should be an apex institution, what we now call a flagship um, public university, one per state in every state. And in general, with a couple exceptions, that's still the world we live in. We talk about flagships now, um, even when institutions are sort of equally prestigious in the public sector, one of them is going to be the flagship. Um, you know, Berkeley and UCLA are both, um, you know, truly, you know, world-class phenomenal institutions, but everyone knows Berkeley is the flagship. And that's sort of the idea that they got out there. So that's at one end of the spectrum. The other huge success that they had <clears throat> was at, at the sort of the bottom of the status spectrum, um, and that's the creation of the community college. Um, so the academic engineers were directly responsible for sort of coming up with, with this new type of institution, which now educates 40% of American undergraduates. It's a hugely important part of U.S. higher ed today. Um, and the idea actually was for, for community colleges, which they called junior colleges, was not as sort of a new, brand new institution that they would start building um, as sort of an access into to higher ed, as, as it's so often described today, but rather as a consolation prize for these sort of low status, inefficient four-year colleges that they knew couldn't really be shut down, that the too many people were, were loyal to them and it would be too much to actually kill them off. Their idea was, well, why don't you decapitate yourselves, essentially stop offering um, the third and fourth years of undergraduate education, only offer two years, and then transfer your, your best and brightest students on to robust universities where they can finish their degrees. Um, and of course, that's a concept that is very, very much with us. It's changed a lot. So they were specifically thinking, the academic engineers were specifically thinking of private colleges doing this, so private um, two-year schools. And they wanted them to have direct affiliation schemes with elite universities. The most famous of these was uh, through the University of Chicago, which was headed by a leading academic engineer, William Ramey Harper, um, who sat on both the Carnegie and Rockefeller boards. And he was the one who came up with that term, junior college. Um, and he worked hard to get four-year schools, uh, particularly Baptist schools, um, across, the, across the country, both in the Midwest and the South, to become junior colleges and then to formally affiliate with the University of Chicago. Um, so he thought there should be this, this private pyramid um, across the country with everything leading up to his university. Um, it didn't work out because surprise, surprise, the four-year schools really <laughs> didn't like that idea at all. Eventually, he convinced about six colleges um, to do it and to, to formally affiliate, um, but they, they got tremendous pushback from their students and their faculty. Nobody wanted to, to sort of participate in that scheme. So the idea died in the private sector, um, but it flourished in the public sector. And so from, from the 1920s on, community colleges were increasingly, or junior colleges were increasingly public ones um, that would only offer the first two years, would not offer the bachelor's degrees, and would offer the prospect um, of transfer into the big universities. Um, we know both then and today that the data tell us that you know most students 
um, who go in intending to transfer and earn their bachelor's degree, who start in a community college, most do not make it, um, but they still, the, the pathway is still there. So, so that was a huge, huge success for them. But then, then there are also lots of ideological successes that, that they had. Um, and one is this sort of lingering uh, ethos of, of reform, um, which I talk a, a lot about in the book. And, and we started our conversation with this. You know, we still hear these same watchwords. We still hear about efficiency. We still hear about accountability. Um, those, those things were established by the academic engineers, and they never really went away. We still think of American colleges and, and universities as something in need of, um, of reform constantly. But to the point of, you know, the book's title, I should be explicit, it's other people's colleges, right? We're not talking about the elite universities that so many of the academic engineers were affiliated with um, either then or now. Um, you know, when reformers from either, um, you know, the, the foundation world or from the government come in and say, well, you all need to shape up. They're not talking about the, the Columbia universities or the Stanford's or the, the Berkeley's. They're talking about um, the institutions that educate the vast majority of undergraduates, um, two-year schools, private schools for sure. Um, and yes, still church, church-affiliated schools come in for a lot of scrutiny. Um, and the big sort of regional um, universities that, that are publicly funded and educate the bulk of undergraduates. Um, so we're still talking about other people's colleges, not the colleges of the elites when it, when it comes to that reform ethos. And their strategy of trying to create uh, a more hierarchical order of educational institutions and trying to create uh, a more elitist uh, framing to the bachelor degree had collateral effects or implications in particular uh, for some groups specifically, right? So like you, you point out in the book uh, that they had implications in particular for women, students of color, and immigrants. And I wonder if you could also uh, expand a bit on that. Absolutely. So, um, so to be very clear, um, these academic engineers were total bigots. Um, they were... They were prejudiced against, uh, you know, against immigrants, uh, new, newcomers to the United States, which is ironic because Carnegie himself was an immigrant. Um, they were incredibly racist, especially towards African-Americans, and they were terribly sexist um, towards women. Um, importantly, they never made the argument that none of um, nobody from those groups should be allowed to get a true college education, as, you know, many even more extreme racists in the South were arguing that, you know, the doors of, of any legitimate education past the primary grade should be closed to black people. Nobody ever said that. But what they said in, in terms of these reformist circles in New York, um, what they said instead, though, were that, that the opportunities um, for those groups should be fewer because, and they were very much on the record saying this, they thought that a smaller percentage of black people or a smaller percentage of women had the intellectual capacity for advanced study. Um, so so that's, that's why I say there were such obvious racists and sexists. But even then, they still allowed that there could be a handful of institutions. So in the, that, that would be, you know, truly, um, 
sort of at, at, as much a university as anything else would. So in, in terms of black colleges, they frequently cited Howard University in Washington as, well, this should be the apex institution for black higher education in the country. Um, for women's higher education, uh, Bryn Mawr was frequently talked about. It was run by an academic engineer, one of the few academic engineers who, who was a woman, Carrie Thomas, um, who Bryn Mawr was the only women's school that offered the PhD. And, and Thomas really wanted it to become sort of a European style research university. Um, she had earned her own PhD in Switzerland and had studied in Germany. Um, and so the idea was, yes, there are a few people from these groups who can ascend to the top, but for the vast majority of those groups, they should be relegated into sub-baccalaureate schools. Um, so again, they weren't saying, no, after, after high school age, you should just be immediately sent to work. They believed in some sort of training for these folks, but that it should not be a traditional liberal arts education and it should not come with a bachelor's degree. So um, so certainly there was the junior college idea, which, which they suggested many, many, many women's colleges, black colleges, et cetera, should convert themselves to junior colleges. Um, but they also promoted much more sort of purely vocational institutions. Um, so when it came to women, the big one there was the normal school, um, which was a, in general, a two-year uh, program that would train people to become elementary school teachers. Um, normal schools uh, eventually became uh, teachers' colleges, and then a lot of them became what we now call regional state universities, um, which, as I mentioned, are frequently the ones that reformers uh, target. Um, but the academic engineers were all about the normal school idea. They thought that was great because it was preparing students for a specific job uh, to be a teacher. And, um, and conveniently, it was shuttling um, lots and lots of women who they thought were generally unfit for a true college education into a totally different track. Um, the normal, you could not transfer from a normal school into a four-year institution. That was sort of a terminal degree when you got that certificate. Um, so they thought that was great. When it came for, to African-Americans, um, the, the heavy push was behind industrial institutes. Um, James Anderson, uh, a, a tremendous scholar, has, has identified, uh, he calls it about the, the Hampton-Tuskegee model, which is accurate because Hampton um, was sort of the first Hampton Institute in Virginia, sort of the first to pioneer this idea. And then Tuskegee Institute in Alabama was the one that really made it nationally famous. Um, and, and those types of schools that look like colleges, they had big, beautiful campuses with dormitories and, and classroom buildings and gyms and libraries and all of that. Um, so they looked like colleges, but they were very much not colleges. They did not offer any academic degrees. And a lot of their work was dedicated to vocational training. So they, they both had normal departments, so they trained uh, folks to become teachers, but they also had their industrial departments, which trained people for manual labor. Um, at Tuskegee, they offered classes in sewing and in bricklaying and certificates in these fields and in, in laundry. You could earn a certificate in laundry. Um, so, so these were the types of institutions that the academic engineers loved because they thought that, um, you know, the vast, again, the vast majority of women or people of color should be in those types of jobs, those manual labor or low-skilled jobs. Um, so they they backed those institutions at the same time that they were trying to boost up a small handful of research universities. 
So even though they had those successes that you point out to, especially ideological success, successes as you frame, uh, the reform overall wasn't able to achieve the primary goal of transforming higher education in the U.S. into a system, into a hierarchical system of uh, institutions. Could you tell us a little bit about why that success uh, wasn't the, the, the final uh, chapter of the story and the kinds of actors that either organized or informally uh, organized to uh, resist to the reform proposed by the academic engineers. Yeah, so the last uh, section, the third section of, of other people's colleges is focused on this resistance and, and what happened um, after the big foundations started doing their work. Um, so it turned out they were really unpopular. This is, should not come as a surprise. Um, they were unpopular amongst multiple groups. Um, so needless to say, the leaders and, and faculty and students of those small institutions that were targeted for closure or demotion, uh, they were very upset about, about this situation. But also, um, you know, state legislators, state governors, um, folks who uh, had state rather than national interests in mind, they really pushed back on the big foundations as well. Um, it, when the Carnegie Foundation in particular tried to sign agreements with a lot of states that would, would essentially trade grants and money and, and some legitimacy to them in exchange for specific reforms. And, um, and legislatures started pushing back. Some, some went along with it, others uh, rejected it. Um, in, in they invoked a, a classic uh, cry, which was local control. Why should this unaccountable, unelected foundation from New York come to Louisiana or to Colorado and start telling us how to order our affairs. Um, they found that really offensive. Um, journalists very much gotten involved in the game and um, colleges and universities did an excellent job of sort of educating future journalists. A lot of them had college degrees even at that time and uh, keeping them as loyal alumni and they um, they spoke very loudly, you know. Don't the old saying? Don't don't mess around with people who buy ink by the barrel. Um, they also ran afoul of religious leaders. Again, no surprise. They um, you know they were targeting religious colleges which were affiliated with Christian denominations, and in some areas of the country, not generally New York City and, and sort of Washington, but lots of areas of the country, religious leaders were still the most important people around. So you had Methodists and Baptist bishops and, and ministers, you know, railing against these big foundations, calling them evil and satanic in some cases, and saying they had to, to get out of town and, and stop messing around in our, our local affairs. Um, so you had this massive sort of informal resistance coming from all different corners. But then there was also formal resistance that really got going about a decade into the movement. So, so the huge gifts um, started coming in um, to the foundations in 1905. And then after a decade in 1915, suddenly all of these organizations start popping up with the express goal of pushing back on reform. Um, so probably the most famous one today that was established in 1915 is the AAUP, American Association of University Professors. Um, and 
if you, as, as I, I quote extensively in, in my book from their publications and conferences for the first few years of their existence, um, they were, their pure motivating factor was to push back on these big foundations, especially on the Carnegie Foundation, which they thought were meddling too much in their affairs and, and destroying the idea of academic freedom. Um, after after those first few years, and especially after the academic engineering movements sort of died off in the 20s and 30s, they shifted their focus to representing you know individual professors who had been um, accused of misdoing or denied tenure or et cetera, fired without due process. That's how we know them today. But that that wasn't their initial focus in 1915. Um, in the same month that the AAUP was founded, the AAC was founded, the American Associ- the Association of American Colleges, um, which is now called the AACU, um, added universities onto there. But that was formed as a direct retort to the AAU, which had the American Association of Universities, which was founded in 1900, 15 years earlier, as a club of the elite institutions that the academic engineers came from largely um, and were affiliated with. Um, so the AAC was specifically sort of the, the David to that Goliath. Um, they, they joined together with the express purpose, again, of fighting against these institutions. Um, as, as one speaker at the very first AAC conference said, uh, he was paraphrasing from Ben Franklin, he said, we must hang together or we will all hang separately meaning that if we want to survive as small colleges um, with, with our own autonomy, then we need to band together. We need to get together and form our own association that'll have the power to, to fight back. And that was really very effective, um, especially, I'm not going to throw too many, this, this will be the last acronym I say. Uh, there, there are also, I'll, I'll note without saying acronyms, uh, associations of um black colleges, of women's colleges, of junior colleges, of teachers' colleges that all formed between 1915 and 1920. Um, but probably the most important one was was my final acronym, ACE, um, which still very much exists, the American Council on Education, which was an umbrella organization that um, essentially it was a, an association of associations. Um, and so the AAU was a member of that but the AAC was as well in some of those smaller associations. So, so that provided a forum for everybody to come have a seat at the table. And um, it started in 1918, but, but within a decade, it had really sort of taken over the place of the Carnegie Foundation and the General Education Board, which were these exclusive spaces dedicated to higher education policy. And it, the ACE really opened that up so that all kinds of stakeholders were able to come and have their viewpoints heard and participate in, in the policy uh, making process and the agenda setting process, especially. Yeah, thank you. That's that's all very, very interesting. Uh, so this has been our quick navigation to some of the major topics of the book. To our listeners, I should say that this is just scratching the surface of the amount of details and storytelling and examples which are in the book, which are all fascinating. So if you're interested, uh, go ahead, take a look at the book. I think it's it's really fascinating. Uh, but now for the sake of, of our conversation here, I wanted to uh, jump in into lessons learned and some uh, broader uh, implications or discussions that came from this 
uh, investigation of early reform in the history of higher education in the US. And in particular, I have uh, two main questions and I'll ask them uh, together and I'll give you the chance to kind of address them however you prefer. Uh, one of them is how the book really contributed to the study of philanthropy, which I think it's uh, really interesting, even though it's a higher education book, it's really uh, a book as well about the history of philanthropy because it describes some of the, uh, the first uh, in actions of philanthropists into the public arena uh, from my interpretation. So that's, that's one of the lessons I think it's there. I, I, I would love if you could uh, expand on that. And second, uh, about uh, how this discussion of a higher education reform in the early 20th century relates to current discussions of higher education reform, which still persist and as you argue, along uh, similar lines, right? So yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so thinking about the study of philanthropy, which is, is really a new field, um, philanthropy was sort of taken for granted or not, not that closely examined by scholars um, until the last 20 years or so, and it's really taken off. Um, and, you know, I intend to, you know, one of my goals is to incorporate historical analysis into that emerging field. So I think this book does a lot of that work. And, and it's really notable, I think, maybe I'm biased because this is my research project. Um, I think it's an important thing that the the CFAT, the Carnegie Foundation, and the GEB, Rockefeller's equivalent, um, were the not only the first two foundations established by those two incredibly wealth, wealthy people, they were the first true foundations ever established in the world. Um, so they, when I say foundation, I don't just mean like a charity fund. I mean a foundation with a permanent endowment, um, with central offices, and with a permanent staff. Um, which earlier, there were earlier charities and funds that existed um, in the 1800s, but, but they, they were designed to sort of spend down their capital and, and not be around forever. These, these were intended to be around forever. And in fact, the Carnegie Foundation still is in existence. The General Education Board in the 60s merged with the Rockefeller Foundation and sort of transferred their assets over, um, but they still exist sort of as an arm of the Rockefeller Foundation. So, um, so that, that was established. And I think it's really significant that those, these foundational foundations, um, as I call them, were created to reform American colleges and universities, not to end disease or to fight poverty or to you know, bring about world peace. It was about reforming these institutions. And, and specifically, it was about sort of restricting access to, um, to some of the privileges of American society. So, so I want scholars of, of higher education and critics, especially of higher education, to note that, that, um, you know, there's a notion, there's, there's a lot of critique today of big foundations, um, you know, doing work that seems at odds with the public good. Um, and I very much want to make the case that, yeah, that is true, but they've always been doing that. This has been going on forever. There was no period there, you know, we, we, 
we fantasize maybe there was a period when philanthropists really just they were just really generous and they just wanted to help people no organized philanthropy has always had an agenda it's always had strings attached um and, and i think we can learn a lot about that by looking at these these very early foundations and not only the work they were doing but also the purpose for which they were formed um so i very much want to to bring that to bear and then moving forward to the present um, so, yes, foundations, big philanthropic foundations are still interested in higher education reform, although I should, I should say really post-secondary reform, because much like the academic engineers, a lot of their focus is on sub-baccalaureate programs, either on community colleges or on training, you know, sort of vocational training programs leading to certificates or, or even alternate paths to degrees, right? Um, so the Lumina Foundation is one of the huge players in this field. Um, you know, they, they have all sorts of initiatives about, well, maybe you can earn a bachelor's degree, but not the traditional way. You'll earn it by sort of showing competencies or, or things outside of traditional classroom hours. Um, and so, um, and then the Gates Foundation, of course, has, has tremendous uh, interest in post-secondary education, but so much of it is focused at, at the two-year level or at the, the vocational level. Um, so, so that's still very much going on. Um, and, and certainly, you know, as I, I open our conversation, I think there's this, this broad consensus um, still that efficiency and accountability and utility are things that colleges and universities need to, to demonstrate. Um, so, you know, everybody, whether you're on the left or the right, wants colleges to cut down waste and to eliminate inefficiencies um, for different purposes. The left says they want to do that to reduce tuition and reduce student debt, which are you know, certainly important um, and, and you know, major, major crises today. Um, but then on the right, they, they say the same thing. They want to cut, cut waste and, and make things more efficient in order to save taxpayer dollars. And, and so taxes can go down. Um, they see you know, lots and lots of um, a bloat. Actually, both sides see bloat. Um, that's a common word. Um, so, so we're still sort of that that ethos that I talked about. The ethos of reform is still very much with us. There is something new um, <clears throat> that I do feel compelled to mention that that really was not the case a hundred years ago. When we think about higher education reform, and so today, a lot of the the calls for higher education reform are coming from the right-wing cultural warriors that we, we see, not just on Fox News, but, but all around us, um, and, and who increasingly show up on university campuses. Um, they're coming from a, a position of pure politics. It's, it's a little bit different from the efficiency ethos, and they want colleges and universities to shape up, to, uh, to quote-unquote, go back to basics, to stop teaching about race and gender and, and identity and, um, and become sort of a more conservative version of themselves. So that's new. Um, but the, I talk a lot in the book about sort of the toolbox of resistance, that's my term, that colleges and universities just developed in the 1920s and 30s to, to battle um, the, the academic engineers. But I think that toolbox is still very much in play. Um, so even, even against these sort of new, uh, new uh, barbarians at the gate, um, 
So I think you know the the ideas of banding together, of of associating and and issuing joint statements rather than individual statements, and lobbying state legislatures and Congress jointly um, is still an incredibly powerful thing that colleges and universities should be doing. Um, you know, cultivating allies. Uh, Yes, in journalism, um, but also in local business communities and in religious communities, um, even at public institutions, um, sort of getting them on board as allies um, is incredibly important. And those those are lessons learned um, from 100 years ago that that I think are still really important today. Yeah, thank you. I think that's that's all. Uh, yeah, very, very interesting and, and fascinating and relevant to today's um, issues in higher education as well. Uh, so we've taken a, a lot of your time already. Uh, so to wrap up, I'll just uh, like to ask our traditional final question in the New Books Network, which is what other projects do you are you working on now or that you plan on working in the future? I know you just finished the book, so that's probably a, a major milestone. I don't know if you have been already thinking about new new things forward. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the book did just come out a month ago, but but I really finished writing it a year ago. The you know the editing and publishing process uh, took up all of the last year. So so I have had headspace to to get to work on my next project, which is another uh, book project, um, and it's going to take my same framework, um, sort of looking at external influence on on higher education in the U.S., but, but move it forward to a new time period. And so the name of the book, in the nature of the book, is going to be really different from, from the first one because the rhetoric and ideas around higher education changed dramatically after World War II. So there's this notion that, that gets tossed around of the golden age of American higher education, um, which... I classify as lasting from 1944 to 1972, so those two and a half decades roughly following uh, World War II, um, when public support was at an all-time high for higher education, uh, taxpayer support was was flowing in, state legislatures and the national government were being very generous in terms of subsidizing um, both students and institutions, um, and there was a tremendous amount of growth um, at one period uh, in the 50s, a new college was opening every week in the United States. I mean, it was it was really an incredible time. Um, and so my new book looks at that. And, and I think my working title says a lot. The, the idea is, the working title is When College Was the Solution. Um, and I mean that as a, as a really stark contrast to both the themes of my first book and the current present day themes when college is perceived as the problem, a problem to be solved. So my argument is that in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, all sorts of folks, especially from not just from the institutions themselves, but also from government, from business, and from the philanthropic foundation world, um, worked together to create a narrative that higher education could solve social problems. It wasn't the problem itself. It was a solution um, to things as, as varied as national defense, um, to economic security, to you know, labor, labor market issues, um, in, including to you know, combating inequality and racial prejudice and, and gender bias. So, um, so for a few decades, all of those things were perceived as possible. And so my book is trying to understand the ideolo- ideological underpinnings of those, those concepts, 
um, how they were played out in both, um, you know, sort of federal and state policy, as well as in programs of, of nonprofit foundations, but then also to explain why it all came to an end and why many of the promises for racial equality and socioeconomic justice went unfulfilled, um, leaving, leaving a lot of students in the dust, and why um, the, the generosity of the 50s and 60s died out in the early 70s um, and left us with sort of a long-standing period of austerity, which we still very much live in today. So that's that's the new book. I'm um, at work on it, uh, collecting data, and um, we'll get to work writing the manuscript soon. And, and so I hope to be back on your podcast in two or three years uh, to talk about that one. Give me a little bit of time. <laughs> yes, for sure. That's all very interesting. I'm very curious to hear, and it'd be great to, to welcome you back. Uh, so, Ethan, uh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for joining the podcast. And to our listeners who have been with us, thank you for listening. And until next time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. And um, yeah, let's keep the conversation going. <laughs>